Welcome to Views from the North, a Canadian Rates and Macro podcast. This week, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Last week, BMO held its annual Global Reserve and Asset Managers Conference. I was fortunate enough to host a panel on the conference on aptly named a Canadian Rates and Macro panel. The panel included uh, myself as moderator, Chris Chapman from Manulife Investment Management, Ray Tanvir from Hoop, and Adam Whitlam from Investor Sales at BMO Capital Markets. The panel covered a variety of themes from the Bank of Canada to the Federal Reserve to rate differentials and inflation, one of my favorite topics. I thought it would be worthwhile to our listeners to take a listen and see what our panelists had to say about the various topics. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep the show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.reitzis at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the opening panel for today. Welcome to the Canadian Rates and Macro Strategy Panel. My name is Benjamin Reitzis, BMO's Canadian Rates and Macro Strategist. I've been with BMO for 15 years, and I'm proud to host today's panel. Joining me today is Ray Tanvir from Hoop. Chris Chapman from Manulife Investment Management, and Adam Whitlam from BMO. I'm going to let these gentlemen introduce themselves. They'll do more justice to themselves than I will. So, Ray, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Welcome. I'm Ray Tanvir. I work with Hoop. I've been there since 2007. I started managing their fixed income and inflation bond portfolios 14 years ago. Prior to that, I was with three of the Canadian banks as a bond derivatives and cash bond prop trader, including BMO Nesbitt Burns. Good shop, great shop. I'm also on the uh, the Hoop Asset Mix Committee as well. You know, we look at things beyond fixed income, beyond rates, beyond inflation, you know, to growth factors, inflation factors, things like that. Another part of my job is to make sure that we generate alpha or we call it value add for our plan members. Happy to be here. My name is Chris Chapman. I'm a portfolio manager at Manulife Investment Management, PM on a global multi-sector fixed income strategy. And we are running assets for clients globally, looking at really all facets of the markets. You know, it's a fairly unconstrained portfolio. We are looking at rates, credit, across emerging markets, developed markets, also actively managing FX. Uh, so happy to be here as well. Thanks. Adam? Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much for having me on this panel today. I am a director in investor sales at BMO Capital Markets. I've been with BMO since 2008. I've had the pleasure of working in our Toronto office for a few years, our New York office for a few years, and then back to Toronto with a specialization in rates, swaps, and provincials. So it's a pleasure to be here today with you three esteemed gentlemen. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. You can see that we have three excellent panelists today. We'll uh, make for an interesting conversation. Let's keep it as conversational as possible. Let's kick things off here. The past year has been among the most eventful and challenging periods, I think, personally and professionally for many of us, as we've learned to deal with this pandemic. The Canadian economy has been surprisingly resilient after that initial shock, recovering faster than pretty much anyone expected with the help of monetary and fiscal policy. And this past April was particularly eventful in Canada. We had the federal government unveiling 
their first budget in two years. Bank of Canada took a much more upbeat tone as they tapered their QE program. And one of the persistent themes I think that we've seen over the past number of months and really even longer than that is the aggressive policy path priced for the Bank of Canada relative to the U.S. Federal Reserve. That's despite the U.S. being more advanced in vaccinations and the economy recovering faster. Given the close relationship between the two economies, is it reasonable to expect the Bank of Canada to hike ahead of the Fed as the market now has priced? Ray, why don't we start with you there? And then maybe we'll, we'll move to Chris for a U.S.-centric perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that this has been a very topical conversation in our markets recently. And you mentioned vaccination pace. And I think that, you know, there will be a convergence there because the supply of vaccines in the U.S. is much greater than the supply in Canada over the last several months. But there will come a time where that actually converges because this is something called the hesitancy factor in the U.S. where some people are just hesitant to take the vaccine. And that, in order to get herd immunity, I think 75% vaccination rate, it might be by, say, the end of June. And then it starts to taper off there. Whereas in Canada, we didn't have the supply. The supply is coming. And I think that this latest third wave, including the variants, have tipped the people who were hesitant into the camp of getting the vaccine. So I believe by you know the mid to late fall, both countries will be at a very similar pace of vaccinations. Beyond that, we go to the different monetary policy frameworks. And I think that there's nuances there. First of all, I think the Bank of Canada mentioned that they were looking at the output gap closing, and it's closing faster than we anticipated a few months ago. The other thing is that they're looking at progress with the economic recovery being well underway. Meanwhile, I think Chair Powell and the Fed have been talking about substantial further progress. They keep using those three words, substantial further progress. You know, they have a new framework now that they kind of launched at Jackson Hole and then incorporated on the September FOMC meeting, which is their flexible average inflation targeting framework over the long-term horizon of 2%. That was a big change because over the previous 40 years, the Fed would be preemptive and they would anticipate inflation. I think they, you know, since 1980, let's just say, but then, you know, in 2020, they formally changed that framework. They're not going to anticipate inflation. They're going to react after they've already seen, you know, the 2% for some period of time. And they also want to see a string. They use the word string a lot, a string of data. So I think that was a couple of months ago they used that. We've got a, a payroll report coming up. Maybe we'll get 1.2, 1.3 million jobs on the Friday report. So that'll be part of their string of data. And, you know, given the divergence in frameworks, the Bank of Canada, obviously, they started tapering. We can speak to that, you know, a little bit later on. But they've obviously going to be ending their QE or tapering faster to zero than the Fed. And then I think they will be able to launch off and raise rates, all things being equal, probably by the middle part of next year, sometime next summer, say. Whereas the Fed, I think they may not start tapering until after Jackson Hole. I mean, as long as the string of data comes in as they expect it to come in. After Jackson Hole, they start tapering, I think 10 billion a month, 80 billion per month down to zero, eight months. And then they think about raising rates maybe at the end of next year, early 2023. Depends upon the evolution of inflation and, and core PC as well, of course. That sounds perfectly reasonable. So you're, you're in the camp that the bank can, can go first. Chris, what are your views on that? Just, just one more thing I forgot to mention is that the Bank of Canada has 
in the past and even after the, the great financial crisis, they have independently raised rates as well as lowered them independent of the Fed. They raised 75 beeps and then they cut 50 beeps. I think Mark Carney was there and then uh, Stephen Polos. For sure. Chris? Yeah, in a similar camp, you know, can the Bank of Canada hike ahead of the Fed? Yes, they can. I think ultimately, as things progress over, say, the next 12 to 18 months, it may end up being close. But I, you know, I think we can see the Bank of Canada go ahead of the Fed. They've already started to uh, normalize policy with the tapering ahead of the Fed. Fed right now is still very firmly in the camp of, you know, still not even thinking about normalizing policy. They're going to be in that camp for a little while longer. You know, there is going to have to be some sequencing in terms of the tapering process for the Fed. So that would push out, you know, even if you start that process, say, you know, later this year, or at least kick off the announcement later this year. So, you know, the Fed... Clearly right now, the dots are pricing in nothing through 2023. I think that's probably unlikely to be the case. So you'll have to pull forward those expectations. But, you know, just given where we stand right now, Bank of Canada probably can go first. The Fed probably wouldn't be following that far behind. I agree kind of with both gentlemen. And to your point, Chris, you know, like we said, the Bank of Canada has hiked ahead of the Fed back in 2010, coming out of the great financial crisis. That was a very different situation. I mean, the U.S. was on the brink of collapse from a financial institution's perspective, and Canada kind of skated by relatively unscathed and as a representative of how risk framework should be in banks. So it made sense at that time for the Bank of Canada to hike ahead of the Fed. You know, this time around, we have a different situation. You know, a lot of parts of the Canadian economy remain in lockdown. The U.S. has had a much more successful vaccine rollout. Can Canada hike first? Sure. We're a commodity-based economy, and commodities are are touching all-time highs. But, you know, I think there needs to be some contraction on the divergence of those policies. Like, should Canada have 100 basis points of hikes priced into the middle of 2023 when the Fed has, you know, 50 basis points? Maybe that's a little too wide. So there should be some compression on that front. I think that's probably the better question. And, and for me, that's my biggest kind of issue with how the market's currently priced. It's not necessarily whether the bank can go first, because as everyone's mentioned, we've seen that they can. And given what commodity prices are doing, clearly that's that's disproportionately beneficial to Canada so that that will benefit our economy. But how big can that divergence get? How much further ahead can the bank get than the Fed? Right now, we have over 100 basis points priced for the Bank of Canada by the end of 23. And we have maybe-ish, 50-ish basis points in the U.S., 60 basis points, give or take. Is that a reasonable gap between the two? Is there a limit to how far that can go? I guess the question is, how far ahead can the Bank of Canada get from the Fed? And given current market pricing, are there any opportunities there? And Adam, I don't want to start with you there. Yeah, you know, one one trade that I've liked, a lot of my trading desks like, has been long Canada-US. It can be tricky on the repo side. I mean, obviously, with some of the buybacks that we've seen from the Bank of Canada, there are a lot of issues that are special. You know, Cora has remained persistently low. We've seen the Bank of Canada increase the SRO rate in an effort to improve that a few times now. So, you know, effectively, that might put a, a floor in on Cora, but still in bond land, it can be a little tricky. I think it's in swap land. I think there is some opportunity there. And you can see it if you look at the BACS curve. You can see it if you look at, say, bed spreads, looking up to, say, 2023. You have some fairly large divergence between Canada and the U.S. And again, looking back at swap spreads, you know, three-year in particular stands out to me. Two-year swap spreads sitting around 35 basis points. Three years sitting around 43 basis points. There's a lot of roll there. So on a cross-market basis, you get a lot of good compression. 
you get a lot of good carry. Uh, if you look at, say, receiving a three-year swap in Canada to pay a three-year swap in the U.S., your carry on that is positive 21 basis points. So you get paid to wait. And it plays on the theme that, at the moment, market pricing has too much divergence. So whether that means that Macklin needs to you know, extend potential growth and push the output gap closing a little further, or whether that means other members of the Fed board get on board with earlier rate hikes, it plays on that compression. You know, another point, you look at mortgage debt in Canada. We've had a red-hot mortgage housing market, and uh, the bank is going to do what they can to kind of cool it off. But as a result, we also have massive amounts of mortgage debt. And so that will, in turn, increase the leverage effect of the 25 basis point hike. So, you know, you might want to go out and start hiking rates as the Bank of Canada. But I think because of the amount of mortgage debt and the sensitivity of those interest rates, it's going to prolong that cycle. You need to do it slowly or you're going to have a real negative downside reaction that you don't want to have a scenario where you're hiking rates and three months later you're cutting them again. So you need to be careful and slow on that front, which is one of the reasons, you know, I like receiving three-year swaps in Canada, paying them in the U.S. And there's other factors. I mean, you can look at that from a two-year, one-year perspective. It's been a bit of a pain trade recently. That has more to do with positioning than anything else. But, you know, you look at Friday where we're likely going to get a big jobs print in the U.S., uh, and a terrible jobs print in Canada, and and we're setting ourselves up for some of those trades to perform. Chris, what are your thoughts there? Well, from a cross market perspective, I guess, and I mean a little bit of a spoiler. I think we're going to talk about it later, but I mean, I think from the perspective of looking at opportunities, you know, the currency side looks like it can be interesting. You know, for our U.S. investors. We like the Canadian dollar, so we think you know Canadian assets. There's still some room to go there. You know, conversely, for Canadian-based investors, you know, it's really more about being protective against the uh, the risk of the you know weakening of the U.S. dollar. So for us, you know, when we look at Canada, that's one of the areas that we've been looking at that from a relative. You know, we're we're a cash bond player, so when we look at opportunities, you know, we're not looking at the the rates market per se the way Adams described it, but we have found selectively some opportunities to play. You know, U.S. Treasury shorts. Uh, against some Canadian provincial paper, you know, some of those levels have have started to look reasonably interesting at periods of time over the last, you know, say six months or so. Ray, Canada, the U.S. thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things is that you know how far does Canada diverge from the U.S. And we've seen this in quantitative easing. So, for example, the reason why I think the Bank of Canada tapered is because before they started their QE program, they owned about eight percent of the Canada government bond market, and they've gotten up to 40%. Had they not tapered, they would have ended up owning maybe 47% of the Canadian, the government of Canada bond market by the end of the year. That's a number I've heard. So they had to taper. Meanwhile, I think the Fed had owned about, I would say, roughly 15% of the treasury market. They got it up to 23, 24% ownership of the treasury market. And, and they kept that around 23% ownership. So the Bank of Canada already had gone way ahead. Had they not tapered, they would have owned double the amount of the Canada government bond market that the Fed owns of the U.S. Treasury. You know, so they overshot. And I think that that had an impact on, you know, the 30-year Canada-U.S. spread part of it. But when the taper talk started to come in to play in March and all of April, you saw that trade unwound the 30-year part of Canada has underperformed the U.S. It's also underperformed Aussie. So we've had those trades on. We were along U.S. Treasuries and Australian, you know, 2051s against, you know, Canada as an, an overlay leverage trade. 
The other thing is that we, we have been short the Canadian bond market to our benchmark. We use derivatives. We use leverage. I think we're a big repo client and reverse repo client of the, of the Bank of Montreal's. So, so I think you know, already know that. So, you know, we are involved in all kinds of overlays. The other thing is that there's something really interesting that's happened is that there's been a big divergence in inflation break-evens. I mean, obviously, it has to do with Fed policy versus the Bank of Canada policy. You know, Fed is letting the U.S. run hot. So you've got, you know, 10-year tips, break-evens. You know, they went up to like over 2.45%, so almost two and a half. Whereas in Canada, you know, you have longer term RB break-evens, you know, sub 170. So if you look at the 30-year spread of break-evens between the two countries, it's at a level where you would normally short tips break-evens and buy RB break-evens. So that is something that we're looking at. I mean, we're long Canadian RB break-evens because I think they're relatively cheap. As I said, that we were short net to our benchmark and we monetized some of that. You know, I'm talking about this year, last year, you know, we sold billions of bonds in March, you know, April, May, October, right after the U.S. election as well, all the way into December. And then we continue to sell bonds in January and February. But we're getting to a point where the longer end, when long treasuries got to two and a half percent on March the 18th, you know, it became somewhat of a risky asset hedge again for asset managers and pension plans. And then when 10-year treasuries got to 175 around that same time, March 18th, you know, the curve became somewhat a palliative curve to be involved in carry and roll down in the near to intermediate horizon, absent any kind of like rate hike move might happen, say, early next year or at the end of this year. So I think there's all kinds of opportunities. But if I was to say in terms of 1 to 10, I think uh, Adam knows that we were pretty much a 10 on things like government credit spreads, you know, in April last year, I would say we're around a three on that. If we're talking about inflation break-evens, you know, we were an eight or nine or 10 last year and even earlier this year. I think we're like a three out of 10. Same thing with carry and roll down. You know, there is opportunity for carry and roll down. Now, if you look at certain parts of the spread curve uh, in Canada, whether you're talking about 15 to 20 year provincial bonds or you know, NHAs or in, you know, in the four-year area or provies in the, you know, six, seven, eight, year, nine area, there is now some curve and carry and roll down. But I think you have to be hedged by being short the front end because when they do see the whites of inflation and when they do start to really, you know, taper in the U.S. and the Bank of Canada starts to look at hiking rates, you're going to have a flattening of the yield curve. Right now, you can be fine in curve steepeners in certain parts of the yield curve but then I think you can also put on, you know, flatteners, for example, twos, tens, you could be in a flattener, whereas in sevens, thirties, you can be in a steepener in the near term to intermediate term horizon. Fully on board there. I'd like to stay with the central bank theme here. Do you think that it's time to reevaluate central banking framework and, and their focus on the 2% inflation target? Maybe it's time to adjust to a lower inflation world. I mean, if, if you look at the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, They'd be prime examples of central banks that would be willing to bet might never hit their 2% targets on inflation, not on any consistent basis, that's for sure. And we will see demographics deteriorate over the coming decades in, in North America as well. So it is very possible we kind of trend in their direction as well. Or maybe we should be looking at stuff beyond inflation as well. New Zealand's looked at house prices. Is it time for a change 
from a central banking perspective. Chris, maybe we can start with you there. Yeah, and I think it is. I think, but the issue is obviously this. This is a a challenging conversation for central banks to have vis-a-vis you know communication to the market. You know, you are seeing policy reviews. ECB is in the in the process of a policy review right now. The Fed obviously had theirs fairly recently. You know, as you mentioned, the RBNZ has had uh, housing specifically explicitly added to the remit in terms of what they're observing. When we talk about the expectations for what are you going to hit in terms of an inflation target level, this this 2% level, you know, is that the right level? You know, you look back at what's happened over the history over the last 25 years in the U.S. core PCE is averaged about 1.7%. You know, core inflation uh, for the Eurozone over the last 25 years has been about 1.3%. Japan, obviously, is the stark example where, you know, CPI, X, fresh food and energy, you've averaged just 0.1% over that same time period, headline CPI at about 02 so I think there's a there's a conversation to be had. It's it's naturally going to be a bit of a tricky one, though. You know, there's there's obviously sensitivity and concerns about any risk of a perception that you're quote unquote giving up on your inflation target, right? Because obviously deflation would be quite a damaging situation, particularly given debt levels where they are elevated globally. It's something that needs to be considered. I think it's a it's a conversation to be had. It's going to be a slow conversation. You know, you look at the ECB right now, targeting close to but below two percent. You know, I think it's going to be something where you're incrementally looking at what is the right number? Why is 2% the magic number? It's not necessarily you know, sure that it is. So it is, it is something to think about. It is something to consider because more broadly in developed markets as well, the demographic shifts, those are going to continue. You know, those are going to continue to weigh. You, know, you look at population growth rates, you know, naturally U.S., for example, has been trending downward. Japan has been you know, zero or negative since about 2008. The bigger countries within the Eurozone have been you know, either negative in Italy, for example, or marginally positive. Those trends broadly, although I should note, Canada, of course, bucking that trend since 2015 with the well-known shift, you know, a, a bit of a pivot, let's say, versus the U.S. approach to immigration. So there's been a benefit there from a population perspective. But more broadly, those demographic trends, you know, aren't going away anyway. So is this a conversation for this year? No. For next year, probably not. But it is, I think, something that banks have to really start to take into consideration, you know, as we move forward over time. Because after a while, you know, sort of consistently aiming for the same target that really has been out of reach for an extended period of time, you know, there's going to start to be questions about that. And realistically, you know, why does it have to be 2%, right? It hasn't been over the last two and a half decades in any of these locations, really. And markets have functioned, life has functioned. Obviously, you want to protect against perceptions of risks of deflation. But I think there's, you know, down the road, there's a there's a happier medium that, that can be reached. Ray? Yeah, I think I mentioned Jackson Hole in the previous comment. I mean, the Fed had been working for two years leading up to Jackson Hole in terms of changing their framework. So they already actually changed their framework. As I mentioned, I think going back to 1980 with Volcker and then Greenspan, you know, and company after that, um, Ben Bernanke perhaps, the Fed would react ahead of any uptick in inflation. They had like experienced the 1970s and the early 80s of quite elevated levels of inflation in relation to like, you know, the previous century, let's say. And so their mindset was that they wanted to get ahead of it. But I think they changed that last year with their FAIT, uh, Flexible Average Inflation Targeting Framework. And so that's why, you know, as I said, they're, they're willing to, to let it run hot to achieve the long-term 2% target because over the last 10 years and change, they've actually undershot 2%. So then 
Treasury Secretary Yellen, same thing. I mean, you know, like some people are joking that she's starting her second, you know, term as Fed chair, but she was in the news yesterday a couple of times, both in and out kind of thing. And I believe that Chair Powell, you know, some of the FOMC members, you know, Treasury Secretary Yellen, they believe that they have the tools to take care of inflation. But I think one of the biggest risks to everybody is deflation. I don't think they're going to change their framework because they just changed it only like last year officially. As for Japan and, and Europe, you know, I agree with Chris. Cool. Uh, so in the prior question, I, I kind of made the assumption that low inflation is a semi-permanent part of the landscape. But what if that's not true? We are starting to see some price pressures emerge. If you look at this week's manufacturing ISM, you can read the commentary there. It's all, all about inflation. Lots of articles. I talk about it a lot in all my pieces. I'd like to tackle the next question a little bit differently. Each of you will take a different position. Adam, can you please lay out the argument for a return to low inflation? So pretty much what we've seen for the past decade. So more, more of the same. Then Ray, maybe lay out your views, which are more of a middle ground. And then Chris, maybe you can play devil's advocate, make the case for higher inflation, though uh, feel free to provide your base case as well. And I'm sure I'll chime in on all of them because I got opinions to spare. Adam, start us off. Great. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I, I personally, I love the low inflation argument. I mean, I remember doing some client tours with you a few years ago where that was one of the major topics that we were talking about was low inflation forever. And so the argument there, it's not that dissimilar from what you've been hearing for the last decade. I mean, yes, we're in an environment now where this pandemic is unlike anything that we've seen in our lifetimes, and it's caused a massive supply side shock. Economies globally started to shut down about a year ago on the supply side. And we're still recovering from that. And, you know, we had a, a very rapid response from the government. They had a playbook that had been set out in the great financial crisis that they were able to kind of implement really quickly. And it kind of led to one of the greatest V-shaped recovery and risk assets that we've ever seen in history, but also massively higher savings rates and large shifts in spending too in fairly quick fashion from service-based demand to goods-based demand. And, you know, for anyone that's tried to buy a boat or a pool or a hot tub or an anything, paper towels in the past year, you know, you can attest to how much that supply side shock has impacted the availability of those goods. So that disequilibrium has given rise to higher commodity prices. It's given rise to pent up demand. We're pulling forward pent up demand from future demand. And so, you know, look at things like the Baltic Dry Index and ISM manufacturing prices are all kind of pushing higher. But, you know, as we come out of this, as more countries are vaccinated, as the global supply chains improve, that supply side shock is going to resolve. And the demand side, it may remain high for a while, but as the stimulus slows down, as the helicopter money slows down, so too will the demand side. And so, you know, when you get through that environment, you get back into a, a similar situation to what we had for the previous 10 years, which is major technological advances are disinflationary combined with globalization and global supply chains, which are disinflationary. You know, right now, do we have wage inflation? Of course we do, because helicopter money doesn't incentivize work. So you need to offer higher wages to bring employees back to get things on board to satiate the demand. As that helicopter money stops, the supply of labor becomes more available. And additionally, you know, look at the regime change that we had. When Trump was in office in the U.S., you had a real protectionist economy set up. And with Biden in place, you know, look at where wage inflation was during the Obama years. It was two and a half percent. So as we improve globalization and access to labor in foreign markets, as we roll through the pandemic, I think some of that wage inflation 
pressure will abate. Um, and I think you also can't ignore demographics. That's another really important. So look at, you know, baby boom generations. Have a look at Japan and parts of Europe in, in you know, the 80s and what happened there with an aging population. On top of that, you know, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal just this morning about birth rates in the U.S. So in 2020, the fertility rate or the uh, number of children per woman in the U.S. dropped to the lowest level it's ever been. And so when you consider how they look at that and they look at that on births, the pandemic didn't really kick off in the U.S. until March of 2020. So this isn't a pandemic story. This is a fundamental shift in the millennial generation. They're working longer. They're having smaller families. And this is going to continue to have an exacerbated effect on the demographics. So the bigger picture is still disinflationary, right? Why don't you uh, give us a quick middle ground and then we'll head to Chris. Uh, yes. So uh, full disclosure, I, I just wrote a uh, Q1 report for the board. And I also trade inflation break-evens, which is go along the inflation bond or the linker or the RB or the tip. And then you take uh, the short position in the nominal bond of that similar maturity or the opposite way. And in the quarterly report, you know, I said that we were expected modest reflation. And I even gave a number, 2.1 to 2.4% over the intermediate horizon. So kind of like very boring middle ground situation right now. You know, we had bet on reflation last year. I mentioned that we bought break-evens. We also bought some break-evens again earlier this year. But we're now running a 3 out of 10 on a scale of, you know, 1 to 10 kind of thing in terms of that risk factor, in terms of alpha space, not in terms of beta space. So, you know, we're getting these inflationary pressures. I think the tips break-evens, you know, the 10 years are around 240, 245. Can they push to 260, 270? Yeah, they can do that. But because of the things that, you know, Adam already mentioned about global big picture demographics, you know, uh, technology, things like that, debt overhang. There's other things too in play, I think, and that is that the stimulus checks are going to end sometime, as is QE is going to end sometime. So if you look at certain economists who are in the deflation camp, they continuously say that, you know, this move up in everything, including risk assets, has been underpinned by, you know, stimulus checks and, you know, Uber QE. Well, that to us is going to end at some stage. And, you know, fiscal stimulus is going to end up having some form of taxes in place. So we're going to get some tax increases down the line. And the other thing is about this thing about deglobalization, you know, China-U.S. relations. I think they're still going to trade. I mean, China and U.S. are still going to trade. And there's, there will still be an element of globalization which is at the margin disinflationary. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll uptick. But then I think that, you know, core inflation will get down. And, you know, as I said, the big danger for us is disinflation and deflation. That's not really good for asset markets, except for bonds. Good point. What's the high inflation argument? Yeah, so I guess to play the devil's advocate, in our base case, is probably a little bit closer to Ray. I mean, I do think we, we have a period here over the coming months where we know the base effects, but you know, there's a possibility that you see a little bit of a higher push. So to play the devil's advocate case for what could be you know higher inflation is essentially what if the factors that the market thinks are temporary you know, are not temporary? Speaking a little bit to what Adam's talking about, maybe we need to think about a second derivative in terms of some of those deflationary forces, right? You know, We may not see an end of deglobalization, but you know, how much juice have we wrung out of deglobalization? You know, how much further can you continue to offshore and, and continuously try to find ever cheaper sources of labor? And in tech, how much 
further productivity developments are able to be wrung out of tech. You know, again, it's more of a second derivative thing. It's a slowdown in the rate of uh, deflationary impacts there. So, you know, I think really, though, and Ben, I think you touched on this on your research piece yesterday, maybe the, the more important question, at least near term, as investors in the market, we have to think about is how prepared is the market for even the tiniest bit of sustained inflation? You know, we're not, we don't have to talk about inflation running for, for five years you know, can the, can the market, is the market prepared for inflation that exceeds expectations even for the next year to 18 months? And I think that that is potentially the, the bigger risk. I think the other thing to think about with inflation, like a lot of things, this can have sort of, you know, feed on itself, itself right? Inflation could be low because inflation expectations have been low. If you start to get maybe a shock to the top side of that, where inflation, some of these temporary factors run a little bit longer than people are expecting, you can actually start to maybe build in larger cases or larger you know, base cases for expectations of inflation, which then that can be somewhat self-sustaining. Yeah, great points. I guess you made my points though. <laughs> I've been discussing those points. For me, I think that that really is the question. Like if, if we get three, four, five quarters of three, three and a half percent inflation, how willing is the market to look through that given the uncertainty that that really drives? Can each of you take one minute and give me your top trade idea or investment theme, whichever way you want to cut it? Adam, why don't we start with you? Sure. Yeah. As I was kind of talking about before, I like some of the Canada-US differentials in the front end. Another trade that I think is kind of interesting is Again, in the swap market, I like looking at swap spreads in particular. You know, we're, we're in a season now where five-year swap spreads and seasonality, really for across the board, but five-year swap spreads in particular, we're in a very favorable, seasonable period where they perform fairly well. Ten-year swap spreads, you know, there's an area where we talked about the bank is increasing their WAM. You know, the issuance in the ten-year sector is now going up to sort of 42%. So that, in the medium term, should be a net negative for ten-year swap spreads. You know, uh, they look low. They've come off because of that announcement. But on a constant maturity basis, they're maybe five or six points off their highs. So something like a threes, fives, tens swap spread fly where you pay the fives, receive the threes, receive the tens, something uh, maybe it's a little tough to put on. But something like that, I think, uh, you know, you take the fives off after we get through mortgage pay season and you hold on to a core position in the threes and the tens. Chris? Sure. Yeah. And I'll, you know, I touched on this a little bit, I guess, but I'll, I'll take the view and it's maybe not as applicable for Canadian investors, but I know this is a global conference. I'd say Canadian dollar, you know, unhedged Canadian dollar exposures for global investors. We've been believers in CAD strengths for, you know, for over a year since about March of last year. It's had a great run, but we think there's still room to go there. You know, we're targeting probably 120 in dollar CAD. So there's still some room to move there. So, you know, can be an interesting opportunity. You know, you've, you've seen a bit of a shift in the driver of the valuation. You know, last year it was more of the risk recovery, the oil recovery story. Now it's pivoted a little bit more to the interest rate driver of the story. Bank of Canada's pivot recently has provided a nice tailwind. And from a positioning perspective, you know, positioning information can be difficult to get, you know, clear information about it. But, you know, we get sources from a lot of different places. It's not a trade that's very heavily weighted. You know, people really aren't heavily into this trade. So, you know, we think that this is an opportunity that can continue to have some room to go. So, for example, for our non-Canadian dollar accounts, we would have Canadian bonds unhedged to, to pick up that appreciation. Ray, last minute's yours. <laughs> In, you know, in fixed income or rate space, I think, as I said, we were three out of 10 on a lot of stuff, including Canadian break-evens, inflation break-evens, RB break-evens, other things short the market, especially in the front part as we anticipate rate hikes. But the other thing is that I think a more convicted trade on the reflation theme is Canadian bank stocks. So uh, we like Canadian bank stocks. <laughs> How's that? 
I'm with all three of you. Long Canadian dollar shirts, swap spreads. Canadian bank stocks are great. Can't deny that point. I'd like to thank all three of you very much for joining me today and joining the panel. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Great to see you guys. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.